Good morning, church. Last week, we focused our time on Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Jesus walking on the water. It's one of Jesus' most famous miracles, and it resulted in his disciples worshiping him. Chapter 14 has been a grand display of the divinity, that is the godness of Jesus. He healed a huge crowd in the wilderness after they chased after him, and then he miraculously fed them. Then he demonstrated his divinity by showing his authority over winds and waves and making them a path. He even enabled Peter to walk on the water with him. All of this happened after Jesus heard the news, you'll remember, after he heard the news of the death of his close friend, John the Baptist, his close friend and ministry partner. Jesus' compassion for the crowds, which is what Matthew tells us he felt, his compassion for the crowds was after this news. His compassion and his power over all things were not diminished by his grief. He seeks afterwards alone time with the Father after he has healed and fed the crowd and he is rejuvenated. But we left Jesus and his disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. So let's open Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to read this morning through chapter 15, verse 20. So stand with me now as we read from God's word aloud. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 34 and going all the way to chapter 15, verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. And when they had crossed over, they came to a land to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might touch only the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile the person. 
But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray and be seated. Father, we ask now for wisdom to understand your word. Please be seated. We pray for guidance and open hearts, open ears to apply what you've given us this morning. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray that you would come, you would bear that sword upon our hearts this morning, removing anything that is not of you. Father, give us focus in Jesus' name, amen. Verses 34 through 36 of chapter 14 serve as the capstone of that chapter and the setting for the next chapter. It starts, and when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. Gennesaret was a flat farm region of Galilee just south of Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee. And it was lush and vibrant. And whether they intended to land in this farmland scarcely inhabited by different villages, uh, whether they intended to land there or not, it doesn't tell us. Jesus, remember, had told his disciples to, to cross over to the other side of the lake. He didn't give them a town to go to. And after their stormy night, it wouldn't have been a surprise to find out that they had gone off course a bit, a bit too far south. But that didn't matter very much because the crowds soon found Jesus anyway. Verse 35, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Verses 35 and 36 form a literary inclusio that is a a mirrored image of something else that occurred earlier in the narrative. It is a bookend, a bookend on the end of the shelf, and the bookend on the other end of the shelf was verse 14 of chapter 14, which says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. So chapter 14 is bookended by two healings of Jesus. The first, which we covered a couple weeks ago, focused on his compassion. Jesus felt deep compassion for the people that he healed. And that's also true here of verses 35 and 36. But these verses emphasize something a little bit different than Jesus' compassion. They emphasize the desperation of the crowds. So at the beginning of the chapter, we read about Jesus' heart for the people... And now we learn about the people's desperation for someone like Jesus. Just like the woman in chapter 12, who was determined to touch the fringe of Jesus' garment, the crowd is now pictured as desperate for Jesus' healing, pawing after him. It is a sign of Jesus' compassion and power that he allows these people to be healed by these means means that we might even consider superstitious. But apparently, Jesus doesn't mind at all. Matthew tells us, and as many as touched him were made well. That doesn't mean that Jesus' clothes were magical. Even less does it mean that we should seek out Jesus' garments or other relics in order to receive some blessing from them. What it means is that Jesus sovereignly chose to heal people in this way, in response to their faith. Just like the woman in chapter 12, 
who suffered from a hemorrhage for 18 years. He honored her faith when she reached out to him. So does he do for the whole crowd now. Jesus has compassion. It's worth reflecting at the very beginning this week, once more, on the compassionate heart of Christ. Before we move into the controversy surrounding the Pharisees and the scribes who are not concerned with the person of Jesus, let's focus our hearts on his compassion. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. And so he does, amen? The Savior of the world does not save the world begrudgingly. He looks upon us lowly, diseased, and wretched, and he shows us compassion. That's worth treasuring in our hearts first thing this morning, the compassionate mercy of our Lord and Savior. But it's worth remembering also as we read through these next several verses in chapter 15. They're not just the capstone of chapter 14. They are the immediate occasion for Jesus' visit from the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 15. Jesus, remember, has been in the wilderness where he was surrounded by a huge crowd whom he healed. Then he went across the lake and once again is surrounded by a large crowd who sought to touch him and undoubtedly There were some in this crowd who would have been considered unclean by Pharisaical standards. And Jesus does not immediately go and endure the ritual washings necessary in order to make him ritually clean. Not after either healing. It gives rise to the next episode in the Gospel of Matthew. These verses, Matthew chapter 15 verses 1 through 20, are a break in the action of Jesus' healing ministry. Chapters 14 and 15 are full of Jesus' miracles, but the miracles are halted for a time as Jesus deals with these Pharisees. Matthew thought it was important enough for us that he took a break in that action to tell of this particular interaction because Jesus answers two important questions that Christians have been dealing with since the very beginning. So let's take our time and consider these two questions, two important and related questions that Jesus answers for his followers. First, what is our final authority? Let's reread verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Notice that Matthew specifically says that these Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Don't let that slide by you. That's worth noting. It should give us a clue about Jesus' fame at this point. These Pharisees and scribes would have been a a, a semi-formal or maybe even a formal delegation from the religious leaders of the temple to check on Jesus' teaching, his orthodoxy. As just a quick reminder, the Pharisees were rabbis and religious leaders who saw themselves as the religious tone setters of the nation of Israel. They were also something of a political party and were part of the ruling council of the Jews known as the Sanhedrin. The scribes were also teachers and could also be Pharisees, but they were typically a bit more specialized. 
They were experts in the scriptures, especially in the law. They focused a lot of their professional attention on writing commentaries and on interpreting the Torah. So this group of religious elite approach Jesus and they ask a clever question. I say it's clever not to flatter them, but in order to show what they're doing. Instead of accusing Jesus of being unclean, sparking a conversation about the law in general, they ask him about one particular oral tradition, ritual hand-washing before a meal. And notice also that they don't ask him his opinion on the matter. They don't even ask him why he doesn't wash his hands. They ask why his disciples don't wash their hands. So it's clever for a few reasons. It isn't outright insulting. It's only insulting below the surface. It doesn't call into question Jesus' orthodoxy in general, although they knew they could determine his orthodoxy in their minds through how he answered this question. And they don't accuse him personally. They accuse his disciples. But as they were well aware, and as Jesus is well aware, his disciples would have learned from him. So they're able to ask an insulting question without sounding too bad. The type of hand washing they're referring to isn't the, the normal hand washing we might practice before eating a meal, a meal. It's not hygienic hand washing. They're talking about ritual hand washing. Many teachers of the law practiced hand washing because they assumed that throughout the course of a day, they may have unintentionally touched something that would have made their hands unclean. If they then touched food with their unclean hands, then they would have made the food unclean. And if the food was unclean and they ate it, then their whole bodies would have been made unclean, or so in their minds. The tradition of the elders is a reference to the oral tradition of the scribes and teachers of the law concerning how to practically follow the law when it got tricky. So about 150 years after this conversation, the oral tradition, or the tradition of the elders, was actually written down. So it's known now as the Mishnah. And it includes a whole section on hand washing and hand cleanliness. The only hand washing found in the actual scriptures, not just in these oral traditional commentaries, are found in Exodus chapter 20 and Leviticus chapter 22, and both hand washings are only for the priests serving in the temple. It wasn't required by law for the common people to ritually wash their hands before they ate. And there were some very strict teachers of the law who taught that all people should ritually clean their hands before eating, and there was a particular procedure for doing so. But that would have been a, a pretty extreme position taken by the far-right religious conservatives in Jerusalem who hung out in the temple exclusively. Generally, the scribes and the Pharisees taught that this law applied to the priests in the temple, but also to rabbis and teachers and to their disciples. In their minds, teachers of the law followed the law scrupulously. They aren't necessarily advocating for normal people, especially these rural Galileans, to wash their hands before they ate. But they do think teachers need to be doing this. So their question is this. If Jesus considers himself a rabbi, 
Why weren't his disciples washing their hands before they ate? Why isn't Jesus taking the law as seriously as should be expected of a religious leader? In truth, it's an accusation that Jesus really isn't a serious teacher because he doesn't take the law seriously. If he did, he would teach his disciples to wash their hands. In their minds, here was a man who was constantly being touched by normal, even unclean people. Surely, he would have some sense to purify his hands before he ate like the rest of the religious elite. So their question is both clever and loaded. But Jesus sees right through it. He doesn't even give their question the time of day. He goes right on the attack. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. In his response, Jesus pits the tradition of the elders against the commandments of God. And he calls into question the whole system of oral tradition as as binding guidelines on how to follow the law. He accuses the tradition of directly going against God's word. And his example proves the point. The fifth commandment tells us to honor our father and mother. But the teachers of the law, these elders, these scribes and Pharisees, who handed down this tradition, had made a way for a son to hold back help from his aging parents. So consider a son who has parents who are getting advanced in years, who can no longer take care of themselves. They lack the money to pay for care. And the son is well off and totally able to help. He would be expected to take care of his parents in some way. That's still true today, of course. And that might mean the son pays for living arrangements or even invites, more likely, the parents into his home. But what if the son says, all the money it would take to care for you, I have dedicated to the Lord when I die, and it's going to the church. That would seem absurd, right? Even cruel. But that's the exact provision the oral law created for that scenario. It was called the Corbin Law, and this is how it worked. There were some who had a property, like a field, who wanted to give that field or the proceeds of the field to the temple when they died. That was honorable. That's a good thing to want to do. So the person would take a Corbin vow, which means dedication or gift, and it would go to the temple when they died. They would vow the land to the temple upon their death, but they would retain ownership of the land, and they would be able to work it or spend the money or whatever until they died. It was a a nice little law. But suppose a devious son came along who didn't want to care for his parents. He might take this vow in order to skirt his responsibilities. So he'd dedicate a property or a certain amount of money to the temple that he could use while he's still alive, but that legally couldn't be given to anyone else except the temple. He could have his cake and eat it too. And he could tell his parents, sorry, there's nothing left for you. It's all been dedicated to the Lord. 
Here's the issue. Everyone knew, including the religious elite, that this was a devious move. Sons should not do this. But because he took a vow, the teachers of the law said that he didn't have to honor his parents. The vow came first. Their law, their tradition made void or irrelevant the clear law of God in the fifth commandment. They allowed a vow to supersede the law of God. Their tradition wrongly led people in this way. And this is Jesus' point. And it's just one example that he uses to call into question the whole idea of the oral tradition as binding. He goes on, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Yes, and they are hypocrites. They claim to follow the law of God with careful attention to detail. And they have crafted for themselves a whole system in order to do so. But they have prioritized following their system over the law of God. And so they break the law of God by following their system. It's the definition of hypocrisy. They claim to love God. They claim to love his law. But they don't even consider how they have broken it and how their precious system had replaced it. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29. The teachers of the law in Israel at the time honor God with their lips, but their heart is far away. And their heart is far away because they teach the commandments of man as if they are the doctrines of God. And so they lead people astray. And we are still very capable of the the same thing. What is our final authority? The word of God is our final authority. Just as Jesus says in verse 6, the word of God is our final authority, but we are constantly tempted to replace the word of God with the commandments of men. And that has been true throughout history. As Protestants, we hold fast to the doctrine of sola scriptura. We even sang about it this morning. Scripture alone is our final authority. The Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith says in point two that the Bible is the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. The Word of God takes precedent over the words of men. Now, that doesn't mean that tradition has no place. We agree with the historical creeds and confessions. And we create things like the statement of faith because we believe that they are helpful summaries and teaching tools. Right now, we're going through the new city catechism downstairs. We believe that good biblical theology must be done. And we hold to words like the Trinity because they are good umbrella terms that encapsulate the teaching of Scripture. But the church is always in need of reform. Always. The church reformed, always reforming. And so we release any doctrines that we do not find supported in the scriptures, which takes careful study and the fear of the Lord. And this also means that we prioritize certain doctrines as essential over others. 
We realize and confess that there are certain doctrines that Christians must believe in order to be even labeled as a Christian. These are what are outlined in our statement of faith. The death and resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth, the Trinity, the authority of the scriptures, the sinful state of man and Christ's work on the cross, and so on and so forth. These essential doctrines form the core of Christianity, and if you lose one, you stop being a Christian. They are outlined carefully, again, in our statement of faith, and we're covering a lot of this ground in the New City Catechism right now. But then there are other doctrines that fall into more exterior categories. There there are doctrines we might decide are a big deal, but they don't necessarily define the gospel like those core doctrines. We might even choose to separate over these doctrines and worship in other buildings, even as we recognize that we are all Christians because we believe the same core. So forms of baptism and the Lord's Supper are good examples of these secondary doctrines. They're almost always doctrines that govern, govern how a church might be run. But then there's an even further category, a third level of doctrines. And these doctrines that we hold fast to and we are convinced by, but we are unwilling to separate over. We are unwilling to say somebody is not a Christian because of them. We are willing to deprioritize them because they aren't as essential as the other two categories. We're willing to worship even in the same building as other Christians, even if we disagree on these issues. This is where the EFCA thrives, in my opinion. Often denominations have included too many doctrines in that second category. The EFCA has very few, so many people have found a home here. One of our mottos in the EFCA is major on the majors, minor on the minors. These third-tier issues are usually secondary doctrines attached to primary doctrines that we have to confess and believe. For instance, we must all agree that God is sovereignly in control of all things. Right? But we might either be Arminian or Calvinist. That's a third-order doctrine. We must all agree that God created everything out of nothing. Amen? But we might not agree on the age of the earth. We must all agree that Jesus is coming back bodily and gloriously. But we might not all agree on the timeline. And this is a good thing. It enables our churches to have robust discussion on the issues as we hold tightly to what we believe and allow others to hold tightly to what they believe because we all agree that they aren't worth separating over, but they are worth talking about in love. They are good things. Another EFCA motto is this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. In all things, Jesus Christ. This spirit is what brought me to the EFCA in the first place. And I'm sure I'm not alone there in this room. The EFCA recognizes that there are essentials to the gospel and non-essentials to the gospel. The essentials are the most important, and we hold on to those for dear life, knowing that if we lose them, we lose Christ. But the non-essentials are important too. We just choose not to separate over these things because we recognize that they are different. 
And we can see this in our text today. It is the spirit of Jesus. He condemns the Pharisees because they made a very minor doctrine a major issue. They replaced what was truly essential to honor your father and mother with the doctrines of man to wash hands. They had the wrong authority in place, you see. The wrong governing authority. And because of that, Jesus rightly called them hypocrites. Now, to be clear, this is about how to live out the faith in the text. I've been talking about all kinds of doctrines and belief systems, things like that. But I'd say we're we're, going to get to that. The next section focuses in on how we live as Christians and how we do so graciously with other people who might disagree with us. So don't worry, we'll get there. But in regards to doctrines... Where do our doctrines come from first? The authority, the final authority in our life is the scriptures. Amen? This is where the Lord has revealed to us himself. And so we prioritize his scriptures above all things. Was it wrong for the scribes and Pharisees to write commentaries on the law? Of course not. Of course not. Was it wrong for them to try and give guidelines for normal people on how to follow the law? That was the motivation for the Mishnah. Of course not. We still have plenty of Christian books today trying to do the same thing. What was wrong was them elevating those traditions above the word of God. As if they were the only interpretive lens to see the law through. We must not make the same mistake. What is our final authority? The word of God. In verses 10 through 20, Jesus answers a second question. What defiles a person? At this point, Jesus turns his attention away from the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not talking to them any any longer. He turns to the crowds. Apparently, the Pharisees asked their question publicly, and Jesus intended now to address the public about them. Verse 10, and he called people to him and said to them, hear and understand. Jesus wants two things. First, that the people would understand what he says. And as we'll see, Jesus will say something revolutionary to their ears. He wants them to grasp it and internalize it. He's not intending the statement here to be obscure, what he's about to say in verse 11. Second, by turning his attention away from the Pharisees and to the crowd, he wants to unburden them from the Pharisees. What they'll hear will go directly against their teaching. It will upend their entire foundation their system of purity and cleanliness. So verse 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. It's not what goes in that makes you unclean. It's what comes out. What makes someone defiled before the Lord? That's the question. Most would answer that question in terms of ritual purity, those in the crowd, the scribes and Pharisees. That's what I mean by most people. Ritual cleanness was incredibly important in Israel. Through ritual cleanness, God could maintain his presence among his people. God did something amazing for the nation of Israel. He lived with them in the tabernacle and later the temple. How is that possible? The whole system of laws that he gave them, that's what made it possible. Ritual cleanness. This ritual cleanness then touched every area of life. 
And as we've seen, it has also been blown up at this point to absurdity in the teaching of the Pharisees. But it was blown up for good reason. Let's be generous for the Pharisees for a minute. The Israelites were unable for so long to maintain their ritual purity, meaning unable to maintain the purity necessary to have God present with them. In fact, they didn't take it seriously at all. And so God's presence departed from the temple. God left and the people were kicked out of the promised land. They were mercifully then brought back and the temple was rebuilt. And now they took ritual cleanness very seriously. But Jesus overturns all of their assumptions about cleanliness with this one statement. If you are an underliner or a highlighter in your Bible, verse 11 is worth doing so. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. It's not what goes in that defiles a person. Well, what about Leviticus chapter 11 and the kosher laws and all the animals the Jewish people were not allowed to eat? Wouldn't those make them unclean? What Jesus is saying calls into question that whole system of food purity laws. Not only were the Pharisees hypocrites in their actions, but their doctrinal assumptions, according to Jesus, were wrong. Jesus and his disciples were not made unclean by eating with unwashed hands, specifically because it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. This statement was hard for the Pharisees, who are still there, it seems. It's hard for them to hear. Verse 12, then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Listen to what Jesus says. He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Let them alone. Jesus dismisses the Pharisees and their whole system right here. That one phrase. The Pharisees are like weeds in a garden. They weren't planted by the gardener, so they'll be plucked out. They're blind guides. They claim to know the way to true understanding of God, but they are blind. They only manage to lead others into the pit. And for Jesus, there is nothing redeemable about the oral tradition of the scribes and Pharisees. That doesn't mean that all of the scribes and Pharisees would fail to enter the kingdom of heaven. Some actually do. Some make it in. But Jesus is dismissing their whole system, not the individuals. If the scribes and Pharisees would enter the kingdom of heaven, they would need to jettison their man-made doctrines. But it seems that the disciples are also having a hard time with Jesus' saying in verse 11. Again, verse 15. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Now, Peter acts as the spokesman for the disciples as a whole, which he will continue to do so for the rest of the book. Jesus' response to his question has tones of frustration and disappointment. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Remember, just a couple chapters ago, Jesus said that the, the disciples had been given understanding from the Lord in the matter of parables. But here it seems the disciples fail 
to understand. And Peter calls Jesus' statement a parable, which may give us a clue into their failing. Perhaps they think there's something else to understand here, that Jesus' real meaning is below the surface. Jesus can't possibly mean what he said. After all, parables can be short, pithy statements, like what Jesus says in verse 11. Certainly, Jesus doesn't include every aspect of nuance he could in that statement, but Jesus' answer assumes that they would have understood And his further explanation makes his point explicit. It doubles down. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. What we eat goes into the digestive tract and out the other end right into the toilet, which is exactly what Jesus says here. The ESV and many other English translations try to soften what Jesus says, but Jesus says it's expelled into the latrine. It's a graphic description that drives the point home. What we eat isn't a part of us from the get-go. What we eat, we get what we need from it, and then we expel it. But the things that truly defile us come from the heart. They start inside of us. They are indeed a part of us. And they work their way out in our words and in our actions. What makes us truly unclean are the sins in our hearts that find real-life expression. Jesus continues, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Each of the sins listed here is actually a plural. Murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, so on and so forth. He states it this way to bring to mind certain instances of sin for us. In, our, in other words, they are real life sins, not just hypothetical umbrella terms. Evil thoughts come out of the heart and find their expression in many ways through the mouth. Evil thought, thoughts are a heading here for the rest. As Jesus showed in the Sermon on the Mount, when, when we have anger in our hearts towards someone else, we murder. That's an evil thought. Jesus lists sins found in the second table of the law. The second part of the Ten Commandments. Commandments 6 through 9 specifically. Murder, adultery, theft, false witness. And he adds two others that are related that that expand on some of these. Sexual immorality, which is under adultery. And slander, which is under false witness. So that there are no excuses. It isn't an exhaustive list of sins. But it gives us a sense of what Jesus means. The things that defile a person are not the things that we eat, but the things that we do to others from the evil, dark corners of our hearts. The things that render us unclean are not the foods that we eat, but the things that we do. Because we have evil in here. A Pharisee may keep the kosher laws perfectly, even washing his hands before every meal. But if he murders someone in his heart, he is unclean as if he had broken every purity code in the law. Now, there's some rich theology going on here in Jesus' thinking that we should really dive into. But there are also some powerful applications of his words that we'll look at right after. So first, the rich theology. Leviticus 11 lists all kinds of animals that the people of Israel were allowed to eat and many that they weren't allowed to eat. And we, we read at the end of Leviticus 11 in verse 44... 
This is God speaking. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. These food laws were rooted in Israel's identity as the people of God. This is one of the many ways God set apart the people of Israel for himself. But now, Jesus says, it's not what we eat that defiles us, but what we do. The basis for his ability to say this goes back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the law is truly fulfilled in him. Fulfilled, not thrown away. The purpose of the law now is not to outline a particular people to give them an identity, but to emphasize the identity of God, the holiness of God. A further explanation of this is found in Hebrews chapter 9. Now listen carefully. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews, it says this. By this the Holy Spirit indicates what the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section, that is, the Mosaic Covenant sacrificial system. That system is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, meaning they can't deal with the heart. But they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. That's, again, Hebrews 9, 8 through 10. The author of Hebrews is describing what the law could never accomplish and was never purposed to accomplish. A purified conscience, a clean heart. It could deal with the outside, and it did a good job with that when it was followed. But in that way, the nation of Israel could could have the presence of God among them. But the sacrificial system was never intended to deal with the heart. But the author of Hebrews goes on in verse 11 of Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he offered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was able to deal with the heart. That's its purpose. He provided a sufficient sacrifice to clean us from the inside out. External cleanliness is now no longer necessary in order to maintain God's presence because now we are all the temple of the Holy Spirit with purified hearts. Praise the Lord. The Apostle Paul applied this principle beautifully in the churches that he founded and wrote to. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8 says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Which would be confounding to Israelites of his time. Food is now neutral in the life of a Christian. Neutral. It doesn't carry the same clean or unclean connotations as it did for the Israelites. That's over. In Mark 7, Mark records the same conversation that Matthew records here in chapter 15. In Mark... There are more details, as is almost always the case. And Mark explicitly makes this conclusion from Jesus' teaching. 
In Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, we read, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach and is expelled? Then listen to what Mark applies from that. Thus he declared all foods clean. This is the rich theological truth. We are no longer set apart to God based on what we eat, but based upon the new hearts given to us by the Holy Spirit. You are set apart in your inner being by the regeneration you've experienced through the Holy Spirit. You are now alive in Him, clean from the inside out. What truly defiled a person, what separated a person from God eternally was what came from the heart. These many sins listed in verse 19 here and more. But now we have a new heart. Our sins have been dealt with. Those who place their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus have been purified of their sins, not just cleaned externally. Indeed, we are a new creation. And this rich theological truth has many profound applications. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Hmm. This is Christian freedom. There is nothing unclean in itself. This is what Jesus says here in verse 11. But we still have a hard time with this statement. We know that there is nuance needed. But Jesus is providing a new foundation for us. All things are clean because we are made clean through the Spirit. But that doesn't mean all things are wise. And that's what Paul focuses on on Romans 14. For some, and let me back up. In Romans chapter 14, Paul is dealing with the issue of meat sacrifice to idols, which was a huge controversy in the early church. This issue of how do you get to know God now? Do you have to become Jewish first and follow the purity law and then you believe in Jesus? That was a major question in the early church. And so many were conflicted by the practice of selling meat in the market in pagan towns that had been sacrificed to idols in various temples. Should you buy that meat, even though it was cheaper? Some were very convicted because they were Jewish and idols were a very big deal. Some said, no, don't ever buy meat sacrificed to idols. Don't ever eat it. That's worshiping an idol. That's participating in idol worship. And others said, no, it's not. It's just market. It's just meat. It's fine. And by saying this, Paul is stating that nothing is unclean, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Again, this is a new foundation. For some, it's fine for them to participate in eating meat sacrificed to idols. For others, it's a violation of their conscience. So for one, it is a sin, and for the other, it isn't. But that doesn't mean that the one who is convinced that it is sinful to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, gets to impose that rule upon others. Nor does the stronger brother, which is Paul's phrase for one whose conscience is not affected by eating meat, sacrifice to idols. Nor does the stronger brother get to demand that the weaker brother eat meat in order to prove his Christianity and Christian freedom. That's what Paul is directly dealing with in Romans 14. We all have different convictions about different things related to Christian freedom. 
For one, alcohol is off limits. For another, it isn't. For one, voting a particular way is a conviction. For another, it isn't. For one, certain movies, books, games, or dancing violates their conscience. For others, it does not. Now, there is a lot of wisdom involved in these decisions. And often we feel strongly about things. And certainly there are issues outlined in Scripture that are beyond the pale for a Christian to partake in. For instance, Jesus gives us a robust, robust list, though non-exhaustive list, of sins in verse 19 here. It's not a matter of Christian freedom to participate in sexual immorality, for instance. But there are many issues that are a matter of Christian freedom. And that's okay. That's a good thing. We're going to disagree on some of those issues. A lot of that has to do with how we were raised and what particular sins drew our attention away from the Lord, what has become an idol in our hearts. In these conversations we have with each other, however, we start from the foundation that all things are clean to us because we are made clean in Christ. And then we do the work of wisdom as each issue comes our way. And sometimes it's a hard work. And sometimes we'll change our minds. But praise the Lord that we have received a new heart in Christ. We have been made new. We're about to sing these words together about Jesus. Listen to these words and rejoice. Raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Praise the Lord. So as we think about these things, about Christian freedom, about the doctrines of man, so on and so forth, let let us first come from a place of love toward one another, knowing that all things are made clean. And the most important thing is that we worship Jesus together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is constantly challenging. That we constantly need to think about and have wisdom about. Lord, we know that wisdom comes from you. So we ask now that you would give us wisdom. Your word says if anyone lacks wisdom, to ask for it and you give it generously. So we do that now. We ask for wisdom in all of these different areas of life. We want to honor you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We pray, Lord, that that would be our motivation, to give you glory. Lord, now we come to your table. And we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup. Lord, you have shed your blood. Your body was broken on the cross for our sins. Lord, you offered once and for all a perfect sacrifice in the heavenly temple. And now, even our hearts are purified in you. And in that, we rejoice this morning. We proclaim your death until you come, Lord Jesus, now in Jesus' name. Amen.